Well, this Christmas, my son Logan wanted a video camera for his growing artistic and business aspirations. So all year long, the last year, he's been saving. He's been collecting money, working jobs, birthday money. He was willing to narrow his Christmas list down to getting money for his camera. And so Christmas came, and the final dollar amounts rolled in. It was finally time he could buy the camera that he wanted to. So we purchased the camera online via a small Jeff Bezos company, and it gave us a target date, as it does, right? It tells you when the thing is going to come. And again, due to technology, you can just watch. Oh, okay, they've packed it. Yes, they've shipped it. Yes, it's in a warehouse in Tualatin. And then a few times the arrival date changed and morphed. Um, And then one day the notice popped up and said, your package will arrive tonight between 5 p.m. and 10 p.m. So that night, guess what Logan did? He waited. Right? Any sound, any car movement in the driveway was like, what was that? Is it coming? Is it almost here? Check again, what time is it coming? Is it gonna be here? So Logan and everyone in the family, we were in the living room most of the evening. So again, it was supposed to arrive between 5 and 10 p.m. Around 9.45, it still hadn't arrived. But at 9.45, minutes before the end of the arrival window, the doorbell rang, and there was an audible scream from the room. And there was joy and elation, excitement, right, bottled up from months of anticipation and months of waiting, Logan was pumped that his long-awaited camera had arrived, when in fact it was actually only a cruel dad moment, because like minutes before that had happened, I'd gone out of the room to use the bathroom, and before I came back into the room, I snuck outside, (laughs) and I rang the doorbell. Don't throw anything at me, don't... And so, is that a bad idea? So when Logan came bounding down the hallway to the door, he was met by me with a sly grin on my face. And then he realized it was a false alarm, right? No camera. It was a dad prank. Right? And the, the elation crashed back to earth, right? No camera devastation. And guess what? The camera didn't come that night and didn't come the next day, or the next day, or the day after that. They lost the camera, and so we had to reorder it, and we had to wait all all over again. More waiting, dashed expectations. And if I would have known they had lost it, I would never have rung the doorbell. (laughs) But it felt just so ripe. Now again, in that situation, the stakes of waiting for a camera, right, are low, right? No camera, I know it was a big deal, but it wasn't that big a deal. He can wait. Delay, not that big a deal. And we can laugh at a camera delay story, but the other delay stories of our life aren't so funny, are they? Like when that stuff that you are hoping for and longing for to happen doesn't happen, it just gets you. Right, when you wait, what happens when you can't get pregnant? 
when you're waiting and you get laid off and you want to find a new job? What about when you have parenting disappointments? Marital disappointment and you're just waiting for it to come together. Longing for a house. Longing for a church building for year after year after year. Waiting for a relationship to happen. Or waiting for a broken relationship to mend. So when God lingers, when God seemingly lingers, when time ticks by, when promises are on delay, what do you do when your jerk dad rings the doorbell and you think it's actually here? What do you do? So sometimes we we wrestle with fear. Sometimes it shows up in our bodies as anxiety. Sometimes we do our best to keep doubt at bay, and yet it creeps in, and sometimes it grows. We often think that the journey of faith, next slide, we often think that the journey of faith looks like this when it looks more like this. So for those of you who doubt, who wait in worry, who are discouraged by delay, maybe God has a word for you today. How do we function when we are forced to operate on the timetable of God? I don't like the timetable of God. How do you live when you live in that reality? What can you actually hold on to? So if you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 15. God may not answer all of your questions, but he does offer us something even better, I think. Genesis chapter 15, verse one. Here's the story, here's how it goes. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. We're in the series, the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, looking at the life of these ancient men, women, families of faith, their story. So before we really dive into this passage and this story, it just gets started here by saying after these things, and I'll admit we have skipped a couple stories since the last sermon last week. And so we are now a little further along. Genesis 13, we skip this story where Abram deals with his nephew Lot, and they're choosing land and they're parting ways, and Abram defers to Lot, and he trusts God in that. And then the story goes on, uh, the chapter before, chapter 14, Abram has to rescue Lot. Lot gets caught up in this feuding civil war between kings, and he gets taken. And so Abram mounts troops and goes and rescues his nephew. It's like a scene from a James Bond movie. And then chapter 14 ends with this very intriguing encounter with Abram where he meets Melchizedek and he tithes to Melchizedek and Melchizedek blesses him and there's bread and there's wine and there's a lot in those other stories. I wish we would go into them more, but we're not. I'm gonna leave it at after these things. After Lot separates and after Lot gets taken captive, and after Abram rescues him from the hands of the feuding warlords of the city, this happens. We find Abram, 
wrestling, waiting on the promises of God. There's a lot that could be highlighted in this, but the primary question still remains in Abram's life. There's a promise that God has made and it hasn't yet happened. Here's the fullness of the story then. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. There are literally dozens of themes and storylines that ebb and flow throughout Abram and his life and his story. So many questions and so many issues, but if you kind of slice through the heart of them, this is the big issue for Abram. God in chapter 12 gave him a promise that he would have a great name, that he would become a great nation, and that through his family line, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And guess what? It's really hard to have a great name and a great nation and be a blessing to all the families of the earth if your line dies with you. And we've met already the characters in the story early on when we first, back in Genesis 11, when we first meet Abram and Sarai, we find that they marry and we find out that Sarai is barren. So again, this, this promise seems ludicrous. How does the barren one, the barren family, produce a great name and a great nation and a family line that's gonna bless all nations? And so in the book of Genesis, we have seven encounters with God between Abram and God. And I think this is encounter number three. And it keeps coming back to this challenge and to this issue. What does God then offer Abram while he's struggling with the promise? When he's struggling to believe. I think in the story we're going to read today, God offers him four things. Let me, offer, let me highlight the first three first real quickly. So in this dance of faith, God offers Abram verbal reassurance. I've already read to you most of verse one, uh, but I think it's worth noting after all these things happened, again, all these different things with Lot and Melchizedek and the kings and the rescue operation, after all these things, God is the one who comes to Abram, the beginning of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. And God comes to him and offers him verbal reassurance. What does God say to him to start off? Verse one, fear not. Again, fear not. Now, it's probably a matter of an interpretation as to what he's not supposed to fear. Is it the lot dynamic? Is it the warlord kings that you just rescued Lot from? Don't fear them coming back to steal what you've taken back? Or is it around the whole family line of promise question? Um, again, I'm sure maybe it's a little bit of all of that. 
But here's what God says as he comes to Abram. After all this stuff has taken place, after all the years have passed, after the decades are starting to mount, God takes the initiative. God comes to Abram. The word of the Lord comes to him and says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Fear not. Now, some have said that God says, fear not, 365 times in the Bible, one for every day of the year. I looked. That's not true. It's a nice thought. It's actually around 100 times, but that's still a lot, okay? But oftentimes when you see God or an angel of the Lord coming to find one of God's people, oftentimes the message that is first given is this, don't be afraid. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Fear not. And God comes and he meets Abram and he gives him these words of encouragement. It's as if God knows our frailty. It's as if God knows our weakness. It's as if God knows that we often ride on the roller coaster ride of emotions up and down. And it's as if God knows that there's times when we need to be reminded, hey, fear not. Don't be afraid. I am your shield. Again, he gives him reason to not be afraid. I am your shield. I am your comfort. I am your weapon. I am your defense. I am your cover. I am your safety. Your reward will be great. And I think it's fair to say, from the bulk of Scripture, this is a message that God speaks to us today, too. In our waiting, in the delay, in the stress, in the anxiety, in the fear, in the angst of our moment, God would come and say, don't be afraid. He comes and he meets with some verbal reassurance. Second thing, though, that God offers Abram in this moment is silence to some of his questions. And we don't like that part a whole lot. And I won't belabor this point too much, but if you watch the flow of conversation here, it's interesting if you pay attention to the details. So verse one, God speaks, right? The word of the Lord came to Abram and God encourages him and says, don't fear. And then in verse two, Abram replies and he says, oh Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. So obviously Abram is still stuck on this promise thing, this child of promise thing. And he's like, yeah, well, that's nice that you say don't fear. And it's nice that you say that my reward is really great. But here's the problem. I don't have a child. I don't have a son. I don't have an heir. And my heir then is Eleazar of Damascus. So Abram has done the logical, rational thing of what a wealthy person might do in this ancient culture. So if you had a large estate, if you had a large household with animals and servants and livestock and you lived in a culture where that stuff was passed down generationally from father to oldest son, you would, in our equivalent, you'd have a will. You would name an heir. And Abram's like, I got, I got lots of stuff now. I have animals and I have servants and I have this large household that's dependent upon me. And so I don't have a son, so I'm gonna name an heir. And his name is Eleazar. He's not my real son, but he's, it's better than nothing. 
So the logical, responsible thing to do would be to name an heir, and he's done that, Eleazar. So God speaks a word of comfort, and Abraham, Abram replies with this question, well, what about the child thing? I'm childless. And so in a game of um, tennis, a game of ping pong, in a game of conversation, here's what happens is one person serves, and the other person hits it back, and the other person hits it back, and the other person hits it back. And so here's, here's the pattern. God speaks, and then Abram replies, and then God should speak. But he doesn't. The pattern is God speaks, Abram said. Abram said. Do you notice the break in the ping pong back and forth? He says to God, oh Lord, what will you give me? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And God doesn't reply. So then Abram has to go back again and say, behold, you've given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. I think it's just important for us to know in this dance of faith, in this relationship with God, in this journey of being people that know God and experience God, sometimes God meets us with these words of encouragement, assurance, don't be afraid, do not fear. Sometimes though also when we ask God questions, he responds in silence and he doesn't always answer all of our questions. I just want you to be aware of that lest you get taken off guard. God doesn't always answer all of our questions. But then, so then it's like, well, I've, I've hit the ball back over and you didn't reply, so let me hit another one back over again. And he tries again in verse three. And he says, you've given me no offspring and a member of my household will be my heir. And this time then God does answer. And the third thing he offers him is an object lesson. Look at verse four. Can we go to the next slide? Verse four says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and God brought Abram outside and said, look toward the heaven, number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. So Abram's like, I've got a problem. You've given me a promise, but I have a problem. I've got to figure this thing out, and so I'm going to make Eleazar my heir. He'll take care of things, and we'll maybe figure out the whole great name, great nation, blessing to the nations through some other way. But God says to him, no, 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 no. It will be your own, you'll be your very own son. And literally that phrase that he uses is, it will be from your loins. You've got to love when God starts talking about our loins. It's like, make no mistake, no, he will not be your heir. This heir will be from you, from your loins, your very own son. That's the way in which I'm gonna fulfill this promise. And then he says, come outside with me. And he says, look up. Now here in the Pacific Northwest, if God were to take us outside and say, look up, we'd be like, it's gray and raining. But there are places in the world where you go outside and you look up and you actually see stars. And maybe you've been to the Middle East or maybe you've just been to the high desert before. You've been to the high desert and you look up outside and it is just littered with stars, sparkling, beautiful, starlit sky. Spectacular, shimmering, 
And God says, count them. One, two, if you can. And that's how many your descendants will be. And God gives him this like impossible object lesson. From your loins, Abram. I'm not joking, Abram. My word is holding true, Abram. Look, look, that's going to be the number of your family. From you, from your loins. And it says then in verse 6 that Abram believes God. He believes God. It says that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And here we have faith. Here we have another story of faith. What's faith? Radical trust in the provision, character, and generosity of God. Radical trust in the provision, character, and generosity of God. Scholar Tim Mackey puts it, we find Abram in a posture of trust and dependence. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for a posture of trust and dependence on him. And Abram does. And maybe it's in the word, the verbal reassurance of do not fear, I am your shield, or maybe he was working through the silence, or maybe it was in the object lesson of the stars in the sky, but whatever it took in that moment, Abram's like, okay, God, I believe you, I trust you. I'm putting myself in this posture of trust and dependence on you. And, and, and it works <laughs> to the point where it says that God counted it, accounted it to him as righteousness. Right standing with him. This verse gets quoted often in the New Testament as the pattern and model of faith. Like this is how it works for us. Trusting and believing in God and his word, his radical generosity toward us and a posture of trust and belief. Counted, reckoned as righteousness. And it seems like that should be the pinnacle of the story, but it's not. Like, yeah, this is a great story of Abram's faith. And yet I love, I love the back half of the story even better than the first half of the story. Because what we find here is, yes, Abram trusts and he believes and he expresses faith in God that gets counted as righteousness and yet his faith isn't perfect. And guess what happens next? He asks more questions. So he believes in God and it's accounted as righteousness and then God keeps going. Verse seven. God says to Abram, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Abram's reply then is, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And I love this because there's faith and there's trust and there's belief in God. God says, yes, and I'm gonna give you this land too. And Abram's like, ah, how do I know? So yes, he has faith and trust and he has questions. And don't you know that they go together? Just because you have faith doesn't mean you can't ask questions. That's how relationship works, my friends. Trust and questions. Faith and questions. His faith wasn't perfect. Even in that moment, it's it's counted to him as righteousness. And he's like, how am I going to know? How will I know 
Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? What a great question. It's like, I hear your words. Fear not. That's great. I've endured your silence. That's great. I've seen the stars. That's great. But how do I know? Like, how do I really know that I will actually possess the land? How do I know I will actually receive your promises to me? That's a great question. And this is what God does next. He reveals that he is the God who cuts covenant. that on the slide? Yeah, God reveals that he is the God who cuts covenant, and here's that part of the story. Verse nine. God said to Abram, he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years." But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. He cut a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And you may say, that is bizarre. Abram asked the question, how, I, how do I know? You're telling me that you're promising me a child that's going to come from my own loins in this land, and how do I know that I'm actually going to have it and not just wait my whole life and die? How do I know? And God says, bring me a cow. What? Bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, turtle dove, and a pigeon with a partridge and a pear tree. Like, gather up some animals and bring them to me. And you're like, what is that? Animals... Smoking fire pots in darkness and a flaming tear. Like, what is going on? Like, did he take some drugs? What is happening here? This is craziness. You know what this is? This is an ancient ceremony, an ancient ritual. This is an ancient ceremony of covenant. And I know that covenant may sound like a really odd, weird, ancient word. Boy, if you want to follow Jesus, covenant language is really important and helpful to learn about. God is the God who cuts covenant. And what he does is he borrows this ancient ritual and this ancient ceremony, and he invests it with a lot of meaning, and he really, in some ways, puts the cookies on the bottom shelf for Abram to understand what God was doing here. God, how do I know that you will actually keep your promises? God says, watch this. 
So, an ancient Middle Eastern covenant ritual ceremony. They were common in that day and age. And they would happen for a variety of reasons. And there are a variety of uh, variations on the theme of what they would do. Um, Here's a definition of covenant from... Sandra Richter, that a covenant was an agreement enacted between two parties in which one or both make promises under oath to perform or refrain from certain actions stipulated in advance. She goes on to explain, the oaths were always ratified by the sacrifice of mutually recognized, ritually appropriate animals. That's the heifer and the ram and the whatever. This practice was so consistent that the act of making a covenant was idiomatically expressed by the phrase to cut a covenant. Often the sacrifice did double duty as it also served to communicate the consequences of covenant breaking. In fact, there's a story in Jeremiah 34 that illustrates this idea. But here's, here's what would happen. And again, this would happen in a variety of settings and in a variety of ways. But in general, animals, appropriate animals were selected. The animals would be killed. Then the animals would be cut in two and they would then be spread out each to a side. And just so you know, this would make a bloody mess. This is not clean, sanitized. Like you begin to cut animals and put them in two. There's a little picture here. If I can go to the picture. Animals cut and their blood running out. And the implied statement is, I will keep my word to you. And if I don't, let it be done to me as it was done to these animals. That's why they would cut the animals in two. And then the two parties would come and they would walk through in between the animals. They'd walk, some call it the path of blood, some call it the aisle of blood. And this covenant ceremony that says, I am gonna honor my part of the agreement, and if I don't, may this be done to me, if I fail to keep my word. So the two parties walk through the animals, they walk down the bloody aisle. Should we do this at wedding ceremonies? Be a little messy on the white dress. But this is the ritual, this is the ceremony. And typically, the person with the lowest power or the least to lose, or the most likely to blow the deal, would walk first. And again, saying, may it be done to me if I do not keep my word. So, again, this is common ceremonial practice of the day. Notice, um, God doesn't even tell Abram to have to do these things. He just says, go get me the animals, and Abram knows what he's supposed to do, because this happens all the time. Go get me the animals, and Abram cuts them up and lays them aside. High stakes agreement where keeping your word matters. And then the ritual goes and happens and it kind of goes off the rails. Deep darkness happens. Verse 17, sun goes down, it gets dark. Back in verse 12, there's a deep sleep that falls over Abram. Kind of reminds you of the deep sleep that Abram went into when Eve was created. And then this smoking pot, fire pot, and a flaming torch show up. You're like, what's up with that? Those are symbols of the very manifest presence of God. 
And he, there's times on Mount Sinai where the smoke and the fire would happen or when God's leading his people out of Egypt by this pillar of fire at night. And so the, the pot, the, the smoking pot and the flaming torch are symbols of God's personal presence. So this is how it plays out. Dark comes, the animals are cut, blood is flowing, Adam's falling asleep. Guess what? It's really hard to walk the bloody aisle when you're sleeping. So in this moment, who walks through the animals? God does. Adam doesn't. Adam. Abram doesn't. He's sleeping. And God's personal presence comes and walks through the animals. And in doing so, he makes this declaration. May it be done to me if I don't keep my word. He's the God who cuts covenant, and he's the one who walks through the animals himself. In some ways, he's claiming responsibility for this covenant. He's claiming responsibility for this promise. He's claiming responsibilities for both parties, and he shouts in his action, Abram, I know you have questions. I know you have fears. I know you have doubts. Will I possess this land? Will I have an heir from my own family line? And God says, may it be done to me if I break my word. This is God's way of saying to Abram, I'm going on record here, and I'm taking full responsibility for this. I'm making covenant with you. I can be trusted, even to the point of death. God's manifest presence on earth shows up and goes on covenant record with Abram and his family line. God speaks in a language that Abram culturally understands. And he says, says, Abram, you take a nap and watch me fulfill my word. Who is this God? He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is the God who cuts covenant with humanity. He's the God who says, I can be trusted to keep my word. He's the one who says, even when you fail, and even in this conversation with Abram, he's like, you're gonna fail. Actually, your people are gonna have to have judgment on them, but don't worry, eventually I'll bring them back out of the land. He knows that Abram's family is not gonna keep the covenant perfectly, but he says, guess what? This is not riding on them. Abram, this is not riding on you. Abram, this is riding on me. God says, I'm putting this on myself. He's saying, I will bear the consequences. I will take the bloody path myself. May it be done to me. Go ahead and cut me in two. I will fulfill my promises to you and to the world. So back to our original question, like how do we function when we're forced to live on the timetable of God and we experience delay and we're waiting? Don't worry, I'm almost done. Many centuries later, a virgin named Mary from the line of Abram gave birth to a son, a boy named Jesus, who lived a perfect sinless life. And on the night that he was arrested and the night he was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in a room together and they celebrated the Passover. And you can read about it in Luke 22, that Jesus took the bread and he broke it in two. He says, this is my body broken. And he took the cup, and he says, this cup is poured out for you as a new covenant, there's that word, in my blood. Blood is shed. The 
those are those words again. And here we have Jesus, the eternal son, the glory of God appearing in human flesh. Here we have Jesus as a manifestation of the smoking pot and the fiery torch willing to walk the bloody aisle to keep promises to Abram, to Israel, and to humanity. God willingly offering himself, his body broken, his blood shed. He took the sword in the side. He was willing to be cut in two because humanity did not keep their promises, but he says, this is gonna rest on me and I will pay the penalty. I will lay my own blood, my own body on the line. You can trust me. You will fail. I will not. I keep my word even to my death. How do I know? How do I know? You can listen to the words of Scripture that say do not be afraid, and we should listen to the words of Scripture that say do not be afraid. Okay, don't be afraid. We can endure at times the silence of God. We can look to the stars and see the promises of God enacted in the sky, but at the end of the day, the only thing that you and I fully have to hold on to, ultimately, how do I know? How do I know? The covenant of the cross. That's how you know his body broken, his blood shed. The cross of Jesus screams, I am faithful to you and to my promises and to my word. How do I know? Jesus says, look at my body, look at my blood, death and resurrection. And so in all this journey of faith and relationship and trust and delay and questions and silence and object lessons, we find again a God who is willing to take it upon himself in partnership with the world. Again, today, in your waiting, in your delay, look to Jesus. See his body broken for you. See his blood shed for you. Know that he walked the bloody aisle Calvary and he raised again to new life welcome to the dance of faith with the God who cuts covenant with us and the invitation is the same as it was for Abram trust and belief let's pray Lord Jesus we thank you for the Abram story And we thank you that you are the God of covenant-making and covenant-keeping. So Lord, we would ask again today, in the midst of hard things, in the midst of a world falling apart, for some of us, our lives, marriages, families, struggling. And we look around and we wait and we wait and we wait. God, fix our eyes. Help us fix our eyes on you again today. And may we see your covenant-keeping ways as a catalyst for our faith to take you at your word. And so we thank you for the forgiveness of our sin. We thank you for reconciliation with God. We thank you for the riches of heaven that you've lavished out in us, to us, through Jesus. May we again trust you as our our covenant-keeping God. So Lord, I pray you'd meet us maybe in a particular way today. You'd be the lifter of our head. 
that you draw us back to Jesus, that we would see him as beautiful and great and the one that can stir faith and trust in our ever-failing hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.